Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's a little bit later than I like to record, so I apologize. It is Thursday, January 25th. I am watching the Kings and the Warriors in the background. I guess go Kings. I don't know. I don't really like either team that much. I'm a Bucks guy and a Lakers guy, but anyways, we are not getting into one of my sports rants tonight. So anyways, great day. Been a lot of great days lately. Um, finished up an evening run and met some neighbors for dinner. And whenever I meet these neighbors for dinner, we always end up talking either about foreign policy, politics, or infrastructure because this guy worked in infrastructure, public infrastructure for quite some time. And They were asking me once again, like, dude, why do you want to work in foreign policy? Why do you do a political podcast? Why do you like to torture yourself and rant about these issues when you could just make way more money in the private sector and not have to be depressed all the time and worried about all these issues? And first off, I told them, well, I'm numb. (laughs) I don't get depressed about these issues anymore. When you cover politics for this long, you unfortunately become somewhat numb to them. So I started by saying that. But then I also told them that I just feel like my big passion is trying to stop an irreversible breakdown in trust that that is going on in our institutions. A lot of people, you know, rant about how, oh my God, a civil war is coming, a civil breakdown, hyperpartisanship. Those are all side effects of what happens when you see a growing lack of trust in the efficacy of our institutions. And this leads to a breakdown in trust, an unwillingness to listen to the rule of law, to trust our courts, to trust facts, to trust our leaders, and then you get a civil divide, which could lead into worse widespread violence or balkanization, like we saw in the Balkans in the 1990s, when you saw Yugoslavia break down into sectarianism, genocidal regimes, authoritarianism fascism, extremism, those things don't all, those things don't all come from just civil divide. They come from a populace that doesn't think the institutions are efficacious anymore. And that's a really bad place to be in. So anyways, I was telling the people that's why I want to, that's why I like politics is because I want to try to fight to educate and inform people and mobilize people to just try to believe in our institutions more and try to work together because once you lose that, once that goes over the 90% mark towards distrust, you're not going to get it back. And so anyways, I, I, I've also been in this moral conundrum lately that, I, that I, I, I've been wanting to talk about for a while. I was texting with, with one of my buddies about this because I, I don't like identity politics at all. But at the same time, I think it is important for me or you or whoever that is engaged in politics to be able to identify your views. I don't really care if it's for internal reason, reasons or external reasons. I think it's important to be able to identify what you think because we're in a time where there's a lot of gaslighting. There is a lot of distrust, as I said, but there's also just a lot of disingenuous political dialogue. And so I think if you want to actually debate someone or talk with someone in a good way, you need to be able to at least identify what you stand for and where you're coming from. And I guess the reason I bring this up is because I've really bounced between the center right and the center left for quite some time. And I keep 
telling myself I'm I'm center left. I'm more on the left now than I've ever been in my life. And that's probably true in some ways. I have really become quite an advocate of trans rights. Um, I've, I've really changed on that quite a lot. I'm obviously very pro-LGBTQ+, and I believe the climate crisis is probably one of the biggest my generation and the coming generations will ever face. And I do think government works and we do need regulation. But then but then I go back to reading some old George Will pieces. You know, George Will, for those who don't know, great conservative scholar of academia. I go back to reading William F. Buckley's stuff in the National Review. And I go, I am just, I think, well, and Charles Krackheimer before he died, great pieces. I think if the neocons were not involved in 9-11, and if you didn't have the Iraq War, I really think the neoconservative movement was actually pretty good on ideas like education and bolstering a national identity. And I actually think that in some sense, Barack Obama, Joe Biden are closer to neoconservatives, or I mean, in, in a sense, neoliberals, than they are to what we're seeing now with kind of the left populism and the right populism. And I've found that I am I am just somewhat of a classical liberal. I mean, it was William F. Buckley who helped condemn the John Burke Society in the 60s, which was kind of a predecessor to the insane conspiratorial paleoconservative movements we see now. He understood that there'd always be crazies in the party. He wrote interesting pieces. He was not always perfect, but I enjoyed his kind of Burkean style of individual rights limited but effective government, private property, and in this ability to understand that you can't use the state to infringe on others. And I just worry that is not the trajectory that a lot of everything we're seeing right now is going on. And so there'll be days where I say, oh, I'm more of a center-left person. Other days I'll go, no, maybe I am still center-right. And what I just realized is that I think there was a classical liberalism that really occurred during John F. Kennedy Jr., during Dwight Eisenhower, even leading into Nixon, but I think Nixon kind of broke that. But there were so many leaders at that time that I think really did study like the, the Burkean school of political philosophy, maybe took a few pieces from Strauss, Leo Strauss as well. And it seems like that school gave way to kind of this libertarian paleoconservative movement that also was hijacked then by evangelical Christian nationalism. And you put all of that into a blender and now we're at where we're at. And so sometimes I wish I called this podcast politically homeless because that is still where I stand here. I'm not one of the college libertarians who's like socially liberal, fiscally conservative. I'm mainly socially liberal, and I guess sometimes I'm fiscally conservative, but also I believe that the government has a right to tax, and it also should regulate, and I, I don't think that we should just have unbridled capitalism either, but I also think sometimes social liberalism goes too far, as we see with some of the more excessive sides of like DEI programs and like, well, the Harvard professor, Penn's professor, MIT's professor involving anti-Semitism, I mean... I, I do think that you see the excess of extremes here, and that's why I'm politically homeless. And I think about how much has changed, and I think about William F. Buckley with this, because obviously 
He was around at a very different time, so there are things he said that have not aged well, no doubt about it. Not all of his views I agree with, but I can't help but think of how he was willing to debate people on the left. He was willing to hold town halls and, mm. and, and panels. And it makes me think of, for example, Thomas Jefferson's quote, in every country where man is free to think and to speak, difference of opinion will arise from difference of perception and the imperfection of reason. But these differences, when permitted, as in this happy country, to, to purify themselves by free discussion, are but as passing clouds overspreading. And, and John Stuart Mill, one of my favorites, he said in quotes, He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good, and no one may have been able to refute them, but if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either side. And I think this is something that's lost in our modern discourse, and this is something that I think the center-left and the center-right and the classical liberals understood, is that we all have different perception, different experience, and we need to be able to have intellectual debates to understand. And I think that's why I've always had fun doing this podcast, bringing people on, talking with my buddies about political philosophy, is because I think there's something lost in talking and challenging each other and not being too arrogant in your views. And what I see now is arrogance in views. Obviously, I think the MAGA side, there's a lot more of misinformed arrogance, but that comes from a very flawed perspective that comes from a myriad of reasons. And But I, but I just see arrogance in perspective, and that's not how you have a healthy democracy and a healthy society. So anyways, I'll digress, but I, I, just, I just have been so conflicted on where I stand because... I want to work in policy. I want to work in politics. I have a podcast. Like I need to be able to fine tune my own personal views because I don't need to identify as a party, but I need to identify with what I stand for so I can rightfully articulate it to people. And I think at the end of the day, what I would articulate to people is that I am a classical liberal. And I think we've had a lot of classical liberals up until about the Watergate era. And then it seems like divisive regional politics, arrogance, and partisanship have taken over. And we need to take the country back from that. Though I fear, in a sense, it may be too late. And, and I guess going a little bit further off of that is that I think if you fail to have this acceptance of different perspective and a willingness to debate, if you lose that, that's when you get into more of the Aristotelian and Plato fears of democracy turning into mob rule. And obviously, I don't have to tell you guys that we've seen examples of that in our own country over the last couple of years. All right. So anyways, let's get to some modern events, some world events. I want to focus on the world today. <clears throat> I've been talking a lot about the United States. So let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit. So I, I do want to start. The Economist has has a line here, or I guess a couple lines if I'm going to be accurate. It writes here in quotes, police in Ecuador arrested 68 gang members who were trying to take over a hospital in a town close to the city of Guayaquil. And this, this is the center of flare-ups and violence that has swept the country. The article continues, the arrested men were apparently trying to protect one of their members who was in the hospital from being attacked by rivals. I'm not going to focus on this for too long, but what you have right here is the central government unable to have a monopoly on the rule of law and on violence. As I've talked about time and time again, a secure democracy needs a monopoly on violence. You cannot have rival militias, rival gangs, whatever they may be, causing violence as well. The, the state has to have that monopoly. And Ecuador is failing that right now. 
and it is getting pretty troubling. And again, this is going to be a race to the bottom because we know a lot of these rival gangs, especially with drugs coming in from Colombia and that Mexican gang influence, we're seeing just kind of a destabilized region. So this is going to be something we need to watch. That's not what I wanted to focus on today, but I just wanted to give an update because what was it last week? Was it last week? Yeah, I think it was last week. I I did a whole episode on what's happening in Ecuador. And the security dilemma there is not getting better. And I am worried that the federal government is probably going to start cracking down on liberties, which happens when you have a security state breakdown. So anyways, I want to mainly focus, though, on Russia and Ukraine for the rest of this. Um, First off, NATO has approved a $1.2 billion contract. The goal of this contract is to replenish artillery shell stocks for alliance members. We have to remember that since Russia invaded Ukraine almost two years ago now, they're getting low. And one of the big criticisms from the isolationists, the the, the nationalists, the kind of MAGA-aligned national conservative movements is that we cannot keep helping Ukraine because our own stocks are running low. And so Basically, NATO is trying to address this issue by replenishing military stocks, which would then allow them to also provide more ammunition and other aid to Ukraine. And the problem here is that, okay, NATO's doing this. I am sure that countries like Germany and Poland, just to name a few, will be fine with this. But we have to remember that also at the same time in D.C., in the United States, Uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives are refusing to back any bill until they get a stricter immigration bill as well. The Senate is working on a compromise. The Senate is much more pragmatic on this and a lot more pro-Ukraine, at least for now. But the House is very against this. And And as I've talked about on many occasions, I don't think House Republicans actually want a border bill They want an off-ramp. They want some sort of justification for not giving Ukraine aid. And the best way to do it is to have a pretty radical border bill that doesn't even make sense, which is mainly symbolic, so that they can just keep refusing aid to Ukraine. And The Economist notes here in quotes, In Washington, a bill that would free $110 billion in military aid for Ukraine, Israel, and other allies remain stuck in Congress. There's a debate to be had, as I've talked about before, about where this money's going and how we're using this and all of that jazz, which I am totally fine to have. But to me, it seems like Republicans just clearly don't want this to go through. So they're using the border as an excuse, as a cudgel to do this. And it's getting more and more problematic as we are now into 2024 and the election is looming closer and closer. And the thing is, is that if Democrats cannot reach some sort of compromise now, it's very unlikely that if Trump somehow gets back into power, that any compromise happens then. And probably the wheels fall off of everything by that point. And I guess you just have to start asking questions when the Heritage Foundation is meeting with officials from Viktor Orban's Fidesz party in Hungary And Viktor Orban is now one of the ones holding up NATO membership for Sweden. And at the same time, is also becoming more and more pro-Putin. So you do have to wonder the motives of the Republican Party when the Heritage Foundation is also helping the Trump team 
try to vet potential people for another administration. It's all connected, so it's not really surprising then when you see MAGA Republicans in the House also holding this up and using the disguise of, well, they don't want to fund the border. I'm pretty sure Democrats now do want to fund the border. They just don't like the radical policies that the Republicans want to put forward, and so it's becoming a quagmire that I wouldn't say, I just don't see ending anytime soon. And I mean... I think there's blame to go around with what's going on in Ukraine on all sides of this, and I'm not trying to both sides this problem by any means, but I think there's criticism to be directed at the Biden administration as well, because Ukraine has been getting the weapons it always wanted, but by the time they've received the weapons, it's kind of a little too little, a little too late. Like, we should have just given them offensive weapons from the beginning, because if we genuinely wanted to help them fight off Putin's regime— We should have done it at the beginning and not two years later. Of course, there's political pressure. There's foreign policy pressure. It's a really complex issue. But if they're eventually going to get the weapons, we should have just started with that, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. And also, there's a really good piece in The Atlantic. I think it was out two days ago. And it's by Stephen Wertheim. And it's called Biden's Democracy Defense Credo Does Not Serve U.S. Interests. And... The main headline of this is that centering U.S. foreign policy on the principle of democracy is destabilizing abroad and divisive at home. And basically, the article talks about how when Biden took office after January 6th, obviously, he's really focused on democracy and the de- de- like the democratic bl- uh, backslide that we're seeing around the world. And Biden has remarked, you know, that future generations will see this global contest between democracy and autocracy. And he's told world leaders that we really need to show them that democracy can deliver for the people. And I agree with all of this in theory, but basically Wertheim's point is that this really doesn't matter to the American people. And by only focusing on what's happening in Ukraine under the under the guise of, you know, democracy, we're fighting for democracy, it seems like the nation building that a lot of American popular opinion has turned against. I just want to read this one little passage from it, and then we'll move on. Wertheim writes here in quotes, What matters most to the American people? Not the fortunes of democracy overseas. During during the same nearly two decades in which democracy has declined globally, the public has turned against attempts to remake other countries in America's image, especially through military intervention and nation building. In surveys, Americans rank democracy promotion among their lowest foreign policy priorities, Biden may think he's unifying the country by defending distant democracies, but his democracy-first framing is divisive and be making overseas conflicts worse. And, and I think kind of what I gather from this piece is that he is defending Biden's credo that we need to help countries, but at the same time, this defend democracy mantra creates its own challenges because it kind of creates this maximist, max, not maximist, maximalist one-sided policy that could really intensify conflicts. And he writes, it fosters one-sided policies that intensify conflicts without resolving them while entangling the United States within them. Not since George W. W. Bush has a president so tightly linked democratic ideals with military instruments. And Biden's effort is failing for similar reasons as Bush's did, only in a more divided America and a more competitive world. And again, you guys know my stance on this. I think Ukraine needs our help. But I but I do think that after kind of the hangover from what we saw in the Iraq war, the pullout of Afghanistan, 
it's really hard to mobilize the American people around this issue, arguing it's for democracy. I think in reality, I would argue it's less about democracy itself and about global institutions and norms and stability. Again, I think you could phrase this in a better way where you're telling the American people, we're not sending troops over there. We do not want direct involvement. We want to help the the Vladimir Zelensky government make sure that Russia is not allowed to set a precedent where you can take land that you think is yours and violate international law. Because as I've talked about before, Venezuela was toying with the idea of seizing Guyanese oil fields. Just to name one, we also see the Transnistrian region of Moldova where Putin is looking. Putin has also talked about Plan 2030 for Belarus, which involves annexation. I think this needs to be less about democracy and defending it and more about protecting just global stability. And I think that would also then play into just giving Ukraine the weapons it wanted early on. This may not be a popular opinion. Totally fine if you disagree with me, but that's kind of where I stand on this. Moving on, the last thing I want to talk about is basically Russia accusing Ukraine of shooting down a Russian military transport plane near its border with Ukraine. And I think, generally speaking, this is just another sign that Ukraine is getting more desperate, so they are conducting more attacks inside of Russia and near the border. And also, at the same time, Russia is getting more more desperate and willing to cloud our information and send out disinformation campaigns as well. So basically, let's get into what happened. The Economist writes here in quotes, The circumstances were murky, but Russia said the plane was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war, who were heading for a prisoner exchange within Russian, or sorry, with Russian POWs, as well as nine crew. The article later says, in quotes, Ukraine said it had not been asked to ensure a safe passage for the aircraft. Later, the article says, in quotes, a few days earlier, Russia blamed Ukrainian forces for a strike on Donetsk, a city under Russian occupation, in which 28 people were killed. Two days after that, the article later says, at least 18 people were killed in Russian strikes on other Ukrainian cities. This is all just... Unfortunately, the chaos of Russia growing, sending more to the front lines, and Ukraine getting more desperate. So none of this is particularly surprising to me. Now, there's a few things I would say off the top of this. Is It would not be surprising to me that Russia did not warn anyone, was sending these POWs over, but did not want to warn the Ukrainians with the hopes that maybe they would shoot this down, thinking that maybe this is a plane full of weapons. Because then you can basically use this as part of a you know a misinformation, disinformation campaign to then say, see, the Ukrainians are striking us when we're trying to do good things. That would not surprise me whatsoever. It also wouldn't surprise me whatsoever that the Ukrainians are paranoid that this is false. It's actually not POWs. Maybe there's weapons on board. The fog of war here has never really lifted. And these are the type of events that do not surprise me whatsoever. Now, Reuters has a good piece. It writes here, A senior Russian lawmaker said Ukrainian military intelligence had been given a 15-minute warning before a Russian military transport plane carrying Ukraine POWs entered an area where it was shot down on Wednesday, killing all on board. Of course, Moscow is accusing Kiev of downing this and killing everyone. But but the Ukrainian military spokesperson, Andrei Yuzov, he said that All of this seems contrary to practice from previous POW swaps. He talks about how Kiev received no requests from Russia to refrain from, you know, blowing the thing out of the sky. And he challenged all of the recent events. And 
Reuters notes that basically the conflicting narratives from both sides, of course, are going to be a daily feature of this war. But from my understanding, this is probably going to be one of the deadliest incidents that's occurred since the invasion in February 2022 that's happened on internationally recognized Russian territory. And it's such a big deal as of now that today the United Nations Security Council did meet to discuss it per request of Russia. Now, of course, you guys know my grievances with the Security Council. Autocrats have ran it like Gaddafi. (laughs) So not exactly a perfect apparatus, but one way or another, you know, 74 people were killed on like inside of soil that is recognized as Russian territory. So it is a big deal. And I think, of course, the bigger part of this is that the conflict is kind of getting out of control, even though it's not being covered as much because so much chaos is going on around the world. But Ukrainian forces, I think, are generally more willing to go inside of Russia. Um, Yusov, the guy I mentioned earlier, Andrei Yusov, um, he said that Ukraine has been using reconnaissance drones in the area. And then also you're seeing Russia launch attack drones. You are seeing potential for provocation, as well as the use of Ukrainian prisoners as human shields, according to him. So it, it is a completely chaotic situation. And they did, I guess, find fragments of what appeared to be the missile at the site of the crash in Belgorod, which is in Russia's southwestern region, obviously near the border of Ukraine. So hopefully we'll get more information out of that. There's not too much more I can really speculate on at the time, but I would not be at all surprised if this was kind of a Russian misinformation event. For them to say, no, we were sending what... Um, I have the number here, 65 POWs, Ukrainian POWs. We are the ones trying to swap them with Russian POWs, and the Ukrainian government shot them down. That's a perfect propaganda campaign. And Ukraine's human rights commissioner, Dmitry Lubnitz, told Reuters that he believed the incident was a planned Russian misinformation campaign. I guess the question at the end of the day is, were the Russians carrying POWs? Was this a false flag event? Honestly, this conflict is just getting so chaotic with misinformation that time and time again, it is really hard to tell. But either way, this is not good news. Also seeing heightened attacks inside of Kiev and other Ukrainian cities, and also seeing Ukrainian forces conduct more reconnaissance missions and attacks inside of Russian territory. This tells me the war is less of a stalemate and more of just a clusterfuck. That would be the best way I would put it at this point. So anyways, I am really tired. I got to do some Nordic skiing tomorrow and a little bit of work. So I'm going to get out of here. But thank you guys for listening as always. A little bit shorter episode today, but that's all right. I'll be back and we'll, we'll talk about a lot of other stuff. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, wherever else you guys get your podcasts. You guys know the rest. And have a great night. Adios.